Good evening, everybody. I just noticed as we were standing down there, we're, we're sitting against a flowery backdrop that says loved. So somebody could get a photo here and they could use it. Like, <laughs> that's it. No photos, okay? <laughs> that's great. Thank you for coming along tonight. He says, we wanted to try and answer... Uh, well, we will answer the question, why the, why the resurrection uh, matters as we come up to uh, Easter. And if you've never been before, the conversation is simply just a different way of sharing our faith, of, of preaching almost, in a sense. It's, uh, we have a conversation between each other, and we sort of allow you to send us some questions in, which we will try and answer and as you know, in previous ones, we haven't avoided the hard questions, so you can send them in as well. But obviously, this is a really important uh, subject, particularly at this time of the year, because the resurrection is central uh, to what we believe as, as Christians. And so the world would be sceptical of, of this more than probably anything, because, you know, this is the believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, and so that would immediately put people off and say, look, I can live with the truth that Jesus was a good man and, you know, and he did some good things and stuff, but really you're telling me that he rose from the dead and, and that's the central foundation of what we're building our faith upon. And so that's why we wanted to answer this question tonight. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, uh, an introduction and then uh, just explain some of the criticisms that people would have or the alternatives as to what people believe about the resurrection what happened and then i'll throw the question open to tim uh, and then he's going to answer it and then hopefully have that conversation across the two of us and then you're free to send questions in and stuff that we will try and answer uh if you if we're going to read just a couple of bible verses um this is paul writing to the church in corinth uh in 1 corinthians 15 and he simply, because there is opposition to the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Paul writes, excuse me, he writes these words. Uh, and this letter is written probably 20 to 30 years after uh, Jesus has resurrected. So it's fairly fresh and that. And so Paul writes this and he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And really, what that's really saying when Paul writes out, the first thing he's saying is saying, this is actually of first importance, it's the most important you know, the, the three things there, that the Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and then he was rose again. Uh, so he's establishing that truth in the early church right from the beginning, that there's no dispute that that, that happened. So he's writing this letter to those who are opposing it, and he's simply saying, look, this is the truth. He says, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and then he rose again. And then he listed the witnesses. He turned around and he's listed the witnesses there, those who saw the physical Jesus after the resurrection. Now, the critics of this, of the resurrection, would give you four arguments. 
because I, the, and we're just presenting them briefly now and stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there that you could dig in. We'll present them and then we'll ask the, the question. So what they're arguing, the first one is this, is uh, they put Jesus in the wrong tomb. And so therefore, when it came to the, the, um, the Easter Sunday morning, the, 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 it was another tomb. So there was no body in there in the first place. And so therefore, you know, it wasn't Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus is still dead the bone skeleton are still there and stuff because they got the wrong tomb so that's the first criticism the second criticism is this is um, after they did all they did to jesus and this is called the swoon theory after they did all they did to jesus which is they they pierced his feet and ankles with, with nails they hung him on a cross they shoved a spear in his side right up through to his heart so uh the blood and the water mixed out that actually the swoon theory, which is what they call it, meant that they put Jesus in this tomb and the cool air blowing about somehow revived him. He wasn't sort of fully dead. He sort of revived him and he was able to get up and just walk out and disappear. And, and some, some theories believe that Jesus sort of started walking towards the Far East and stuff. So let's imagine that all the torture they'd put him through before they put him on the cross, the beatings, the t all of that and stuff. And then they put him on the cross where they pierced his, his feet and his hands and stabbed him in the side and did all of that, that actually he only just fainted. That just caused him to faint and then put him in there. That, that probably takes a little bit more faith to believe than probably what we're actually doing uh, there and stuff. So we've got those two theories. The third one is this, is actually the body was stolen. So, so Jesus died and then the body were stolen and so because they wanted to build this theory about the resurrection that, that, that simply the body was stolen. Well the two problems with that is this, the first one is this, if it had been Jesus's enemies that stole the body, whenever it came through that Jesus had risen from the dead and, and things like that, all they would have to do is present the body wouldn't they? They say oh, hold on a second, no that's not true, we stole the body, we, we, they believed this but here is the body. They would also argue that the disciples stole the body. Well, okay, let's follow that logic. And then that they said the disciples stole the body, they hid it somewhere, and therefore, you know, they built this faith, they built this religion around a stolen body. Well, if you follow the lives of all of the disciples that witnessed Jesus dying, the ones closest to him, all of them were persecuted and martyred for, all of them were persecuted and martyred uh, for their death. Now, for one of them to be persecuted and martyred for their death would have been like, well, okay, you could understand that. For all of them, because at one point, one of them could have just turned around and said, no, it's not true. We stole the body. We, we, we've got the body. We stole it to, to prove this. We stole it to do, uh, to do this. But none of them did that. All of their lives were radically changed after the resurrection of Jesus. These were people that denied Jesus before he went to the cross. So the transformation of their lives, in a sense, was, uh, was absolutely huge and stuff. And the fourth one, which I forgot, I thought was doing well then, just to do the three, is the hallucination theory, which is simply, they all just hallucinated. They all just believed, 500 of them, the same thing at the same time. Now, 
they actually went outside of biblical evidence to ask a psychologist to say, look, what are the chances of this happening? They said it would actually be the same as believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So 500 people all at the same time would all have the same hallucination, seeing the same thing and believing the same thing. He said it would be practically impossible and stuff. So those are the theories that people would criticize and say, oh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically. Jesus is he, still in a tomb somewhere. He, he, you know, what, what, what injured him, he was able to recover from, to walk out of the tomb. All of this stuff came through. So the reason we're trying to answer this question tonight, because it's so important for us to do this, that we, we understand the meaning of the resurrection spiritually, but we also believe in it, the truth of it, historically. We, we must do that. We must believe in it historically as well as the meaning of it. So people don't just think all us Christians are nuts. Some of us are, but they don't think that. Some of you are, but they, they don't think that we're all just nuts. Actually, there's some historical evidence as well as biblical evidence that simply says, hold on a second, this is actually historical truth. There was a man called Jesus Christ who came and he died on the cross for our sins was buried and on the third day he rose again Tim why does the resurrection matter yeah um, there's no doubt about it the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith there's not a single page of the New Testament that was written without the underpinning conviction that Jesus Christ physically literally bodily rose from the dead and as Pastor Matt has already said there's two things you need to deal with funny I was listening to a podcast just incidentally came across it by the BBC and the men were discussing the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and they weren't believers they were historians and they said there are two things you really need to deal with whether or not you're a believer it doesn't make any difference you need to deal with these two things number one the empty tomb the tomb was definitely empty and as Pastor Matt's already said the scribes and the Pharisees would desperately have loved to produce a body within six weeks of his death Peter's on the streets of Jerusalem saying the tomb of, of David is with us to this day. But the tomb of Jesus is empty and if the scribes and the Pharisees had been able to prove that there was a body, they would have been running bus tours every day to say, look, this is nonsense. Even Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, when they came and said, look, what are we going to do about these fanatical Christians? Gamaliel had to acknowledge that there was an empty tomb because Gamaliel said, look, if this is of God, you can't stop it. But if this is of man, then it'll just peter out. And here we are, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years later, living testimonies to the fact that this is of God. This is of God. Here we are sitting in a city that Peter would never have heard of, speaking a language he wouldn't have understood. And we're talking about what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning, that Jesus Christ literally, bodily, physically rose from the dead. And those disciples, 11 of them, between his, his, his death, pastor, and his, his, the news of his rising, they were locked behind closed and bolted doors. They didn't, even enough, they didn't even have enough to put out a decent football team. There was only 11 of them, no subs. And Judas had gone and killed himself. So, so here were 11 guys that weren't, you know, poised on the verge of belief, just waiting for the shadow of an excuse to run out into the world and just foister this mythology in everybody. Here were 11 men who were locked behind closed and bolted doors for fear of the Jews, that they might be the next ones up on a cross. 
and, 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 and these guys are out on the streets of the city in which he was crucified. The tomb of Jesus was a 15-minute walk from the center of Jerusalem back in the first century. And these two guys in this BBC podcast said, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with the fact of an empty tomb. The only explanation that makes sense is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and came out of it. And you also need, one of the guys said, from the very get-go, that was the phrase he used, from the very get-go, Jesus Christ was being worshipped as God from the very get-go. So the resurrection matters. It's the absolute cornerstone of our faith. It mattered to Jesus Christ personally, first of all, because uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 said Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. He was established as Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And what that simply means is this. He was always Son of God. And what that simply means is his life and his death, he was vindicated by the fact of his resurrection from the dead. It was an indication of the fact that the Father had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, on the cross. The Father accepted his sacrifice, and the reason we know that is because God raised him from the dead. So it is the very cornerstone of our faith for Christ personally, and then as we'll see for us as individuals also. Yeah, well, we, we examine the evidence, don't we? Because I remember reading this, that there was a, like a Messiah complex at the time of Jesus, that there were many going around proclaiming and declaring to be the, the Messiah, the chosen one. The, 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 there was lo- lots of people. It wasn't just Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. There were lots of people going around, and so... What even, I read this, even this atheist historian said this, and, and I, I read it, and he said, listen, he said, what would have happened usually is that this person would have claimed to be the Messiah, would have died for what he believed in, but because he didn't rise again, because nothing happened after that, people would have just moved on. They would have moved on and believed in something else. And yet here with Jesus Christ, he said that that didn't happen. There wasn't any of them that turned around and said, as you said, he radically changed. That, I mean, I always look at Peter and think, you know, in the garden, he chops the ear off one of the guards that comes thinking, he then denies Jesus. And then six weeks later, seven weeks later, he is the first gospel preacher on the day of Pentecost preaching uh, at the birth of the church. That's got to be life transformation as one of the reasons. So we, we, we have the evidence, don't we, to, to, to bring to it. Even, you know, even what Paul writes here to the church in Corinth, he, he goes and he says, he said, listen, if this hasn't happened, he says, the reality is this. He said, you know, we're dead in our sin. I mean, because if Jesus didn't die, if he hadn't died and rose again, he says death has defeated him as well. And yet one of the things reasons God sent Jesus was that death would be defeated and it was the last we had this conversation death is at last almost I mean it's a taboo subject as well as you know I mean actually thought about the conversation one night should we do it you know talking about death but I don't know if that's going to be a cheery subject to entice people in but it is a taboo subject we have to accept that there's a reality and even Christians don't always understand that because it's such an important subject because, you know, with Adam, at the beginning, death was brought into the world. But Jesus defeated death, not just sin, but death as well. And so, therefore, that's why we have the hope and all of that tonight. So, we have to examine the evidence and stuff. And, and two things with the evidence is it's two guys in the last 50 years. There's lots of people out there that do, you know, it depends. But two guys, Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, were both people who set out 
to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we showed a film, this, this Case for Christ is Lee Strobel. He actually set out to dispute the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a journalist, he did, he examined all the evidence, and then basically his conclusion was simply, this has to be true. Josh McDowell did the same. I'm afraid to say those of us of a certain generation would know Josh McDowell. But Never he, heard of him. No, 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 he would be. He, he's slightly older than you are, all right? And he's, uh, but he would present that, and he did the same thing. He went out in the 70s and, and said, I'm going to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, examine the evidence. And then he decided, he said, this has to be true. He says, you know, it has to be, and these are people are journalists, so it's the evidence, isn't it? Yeah, the evidence is there. I mean, I've said many times from this pulpit that our Christian faith not only demands investigation, our Christian faith invites it. It invites it. And I know personally, you know, I've listened to all the atheists over the years, and you come through your teenage years, and, and even, you know, today we're surrounded by, you know, popular atheists, and, you know, as, as purported by Ricky Gervais and others. And, uh, you know, he would have said things like, well, if you were born in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you'd have been born in Saudi Arabia, you'd be a Muslim. And because you're born in Northern Ireland, Tim, you know, your mum and dad were Pentecostals, went to the Assemblies of God, and you are brought up in this. And it started me thinking and saying, well, is what I have real? Or have I embraced some sort of mythology? And so I read their books. And, and, and I can say from personal experience, not just... You know, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. That's good, but it's not good enough. We can provide evidence. This is historically verifiable. And as Pastor Matt has already said, you know, Jesus Christ defeated death. And as that text says, he is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. So in the Old Testament, if I had a field and it produced a harvest, I took the first of my harvest and I went in before the Lord and I waved it in the temple. And I was bringing the first of my field to the Lord as an offering, as a thank offering. But it was also an indication of a greater harvest that was to follow. And because Jesus Christ has defeated death, then therefore he's made a way whereby you and I who trust him can defeat death as well. Not in ourselves, but through being united to Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, it's, you know when Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon back in July 1969, do you remember what he said as he stepped off Apollo? This is one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. And so from the ridiculous to the sublime, it's as though, you know, what Armstrong was saying is, if one man can break this barrier, you know, if, if one man can make it to the moon, then if you can afford it one day, we'll all be able to make it to the moon. And in a far greater way, Jesus Christ defeated death. And if one man defeated death... You know, the Trinity was involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, God raised him from the dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in yeah. you, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will also, you know, quicken your mortal bodies. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 2, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And thereby making a way for us who are united to Christ to one day be resurrected. You know, this is not a new thing. I mean, the oldest book in the Bible, pastor, as you'll know, back in the book of Job, in Job chapter 19, Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the latter day he shall stand upon the face of the earth, and though after my skin, listen to this graphic language, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another. 
And there, there is a fear of death, as our pastor said. It's a taboo subject. And, and actually, a few weeks ago, I was listening uh, to Ricky Gervais, and he was talking about afterlife. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. Probably most of us have. Anybody seen that? Am I the only pagan in the place? A couple of honest people willing to admit that we've watched all three seasons of afterlife. But you'll know there that he meets the lady at the grave, and she's there at the grave where her husband Stan. And she's weeping, and he says, you know, but, you know, and she says, well, I loved him so much that I would rather I live missing him than he live missing me. And Ricky was asked about that in the interview, and the guy said, do you fear death? He says, no, I don't fear death. I don't fear death. And I thought what he said next was funny. He said, death, it's like being stupid. It's only painful for other people. <laughs> I thought, that, isn't that the truth? But, but that's what he said. I don't fear it. He said, when I die, I won't know I'm dead. And you look at that and you think, you know, humor is a flimsy shield against this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, for as much as the children, speaking about the children of God, that's us, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, so you and I are made up of flesh and blood. Then speaking of Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same, so he became flesh and blood. What for? Listen to the end of the verse. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. I don't fear death tonight. I might fear the process of death. And when my father was, was, was dying, as, as, as I've told you, Matt, I'll, I'll finish in two seconds. He was uh, 11 weeks lying in bed. And, and we talked about these things many a time. And my dad was as deaf as a post. And he used to come in the alley door, and, and I said, are you all right? Are you all right now? And he said, I'm ready to die. Of course I'm ready to die. I said, that's not what I said. I said, are you all right now? And so he, he, would, he would lie there, and, and I said to him one day, um, where are you in your head? He said, I'm just thinking about heavenly things. And we began to talk about that process of, of dying and death. And I said, Daddy, if, if, if you knew what your entry into the world would be like, you know, if, if somebody sat down and said, you pastor, you're going to be in this watery sack in the dark for nine months, curled up, and then you're going to be forced down a birth canal and into this world, you'd have said, that's horrific. I don't want that. And I said, Daddy, the God who took care of your entry will take care of your exit. Whatever that is for us as believers, whatever it's like to be a disembodied spirit, and, and I, one day, if Jesus tarries, I will close my eyes in death, and I will go out into eternity on the bare word of Jesus Christ, who said, because I live, you will live also. So does the resurrection matter? You better believe it matters. It matters. No, definitely. Because I think if we examine the evidence again and look at it and say, because there's a message that promoted in Christianity almost, and we know Joel Osteen's your best life now and all of this stuff that comes through. But actually the reality and the truth is that our hope in this life now is tied up by what happens to us at the end of our life. That, that we are here, you know, but then at some point we won't be. But our hope is built on the fact that it's, it's, Jesus Christ died uh, as Paul writes here, he says he died for our sins, was buried, and then rose again. But his resurrection gives me a resurrection. As you said, what, sorry. What, it, what it, you, sorry, go no, ahead. No, don't, don't don't it. It, it's like, th this was true even for Jesus himself. We were talking about yeah. in the car coming here. 
You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? So the joy of becoming an everlasting high priest for his people, the joy of being king of kings and lord of lords one day, the joy of sitting down with his father on his right hand, the joy of having all authority of heaven and earth committed to him, that joy of the future he brought into the present, and that joy kept him minute by minute on the cross. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could have looked at the cross. I'm a bit squeamish. When that program, Surgeons at the End of Life, is on BBC Two, I can't even watch them doing the operations. I'm like that. Do you watch that? No, I don't. What's no, that I one? can watch that. I can. So, that? Surgeons one, at the End of Life. I can't watch called? that one born every minute. No, I can't. Ah, no, dear. no. That's, that's, that's a whole... That's a, no. <laughs> even, See that? Oh. Even though See we're that. surrounded by flowers here, there's places yeah. men should not go. And hey. that's... If it's, if it's below the belly button and above the knee, we don't need to be there. Yeah. Definitely not. That's true. But, That's true. but <laughs> I, 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 couldn't, I could not have watched the cross. No. I couldn't have watched any of the Islamic State beheading videos. In, in 2023, we are more sanitized to all of this. Earlier generations were more accustomed to this. But, but we're not. I, I could not have watched Jesus dying on the cross. And yet the Bible tells me, moment by moment by moment, he stayed on the cross. And the joy that was set before him enabled him to do that. And, and if he was here tonight, and he is by his spirit, he would say, in the words of John 15 and verse 11, these things I have spoken unto you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. So the future joy that kept him on the cross to a degree, the future joy that one day I will experience helps us every day to go through whatever we're going through, recognizing that because he lives, we will live also. Yeah. A couple of questions for people. We're, we're starting to question. Uh, some people have sent some in. Uh, Somebody's like, does all churches tell the same story of what happened for the resurrection and what one do we believe? Uh, well, we believe what the Bible says. It's as simple as, as that. that, that just, uh, and, and probably illustrated was that what Paul writes, uh, that, that a, a creed for the early church in a sense. Uh, you know, th those three truths, that we're not complicated. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and raised up on the third day. Uh, so that's what we believe about the resurrection. There can be no Christian faith and hope without the resurrection. We can't just say the first two are okay, that Christ died for our sins and was buried. If we stop there, there there's no message. There, there, there's no hope. There's Paul no, says uh, we're large. But yeah, Paul even writes, doesn't yeah. he? He said, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, he says we're still in our sin. He says we're, 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 and we're more to be pitied. You know, and our preaching is useless. You might find our preaching is useless, but it says our preaching of Christ and the gospel message is useless because he hasn't risen from the dead. So if you're asking what we believe here as a church, we just believe that the, what the Bible says and that, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And, and so other churches may believe different things and stuff, but for us here, it's what the Bible, and those three truths are absolutely essential and important, and the foundation of what we believe. I don't think there's anything... And why would there. you come? 
Yeah. Why would you come? I mean, if Jesus, I mean, there's other places we could be. There's nice coffee shops. There's nice walks to take. There's nice books to read. There's plenty of movies. And so, why would you be here if Jesus Christ hasn't risen from the dead? As, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we are liars. We're liars. I've taken my brain out somewhere in my teenage years and stuck it underneath my chair, and I'm an idiot. Every sermon that I've preached has been nonsense. Every time I've stood in an open grave, I have a funeral next week, when I stand at that lady's grave and say, for as much as it has pleased Almighty God to take to himself the soul of our sister here departed, we commit our body to the earth, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and sure and certain hope of a resurrection. I'm a liar. Yeah. I'm a liar. Why would you do it? So... And it's probably at that moment that that makes, I know for me, that makes all the difference. We're doing so many funerals, there is a, that's the massive difference. You stand at a funeral service of somebody who is saved. Oh my, the, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection is what gives. That doesn't mean that there's no grief. To the Thessalonians, we do not sorrow as those who don't have uh, grief. It said we still grieve, but we have a hope. But when you're standing at the grave and doing the service for somebody who hasn't, they've no hope. And that the decision they've made, that they have made a decision or the way they wanted to live, you're, you're distressed about that, whether you're, because it's too late. I mean, that's the reality of it. And you still share the gospel message with the people who, who are listening because on that day and, and, and on that day of the funeral, that's the one day everybody's thinking, what happens to me when this happens? And it's a one day, so we take that opportunity. No, not, not in an unloving way, but in a way that says, listen, you, this will come to you one day. What, what is it about, you know, where will you end up? Where, where will you go? You know, where is your sure and certain hope? I, I know where mine is, and I'm thankful for it. He says, I might be afraid of the process of dying, being a plane or something like that, but <laughs> actually, the actual fear of death is, is not there in a sense, you know. It's just looking at it thinking, you know, yeah, I know where I'm going to go. I, I know that, that at that point when, you know, that happens and... You know, people will say nice things about me and people will say, Maybe. we really did love his sermons after all. What, uh, what do you fear most you never experience? Yeah, that's it. Because that's it. It, it's like, you remember when you were a kid, you used to fall asleep. You know, I, every Sunday night after church, they would all go to my granny's and they would all talk about him. Sometimes they would have roasted past there for supper. But uh, they, would, they would talk about hymns and stuff. And as a kid, I just thought, I'm bored with this. And I would, I would go under my granny's dining room table, put my head in a box and literally go to sleep. And, and then I would wake up in my own bed because they lived in Bally Hill and Crescent. We lived in Benview Drive. And either mum or dad would carry me around. And, and you know that feeling, you wake up and you're in your own bed. Child of God, tonight, listen, you'll fall asleep in the arms of Jesus. And you'll wake up and you will be home. You will be home. And what you fear most, you'll never experience. Because he's... he's faithful to his promises. And I, I've told you already, I will close my eyes in death. And we have done it with loved ones, family members. We, we will close our eyes in death and we will go out into eternity on his word. Because I live, you will live also. That's our hope. Yeah. I mean, no wonder so many kids get freaked out about the thought of it because most parents, I know the, now, but certainly back then, as I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Yeah. <laughs> if I die before I wake, 
God, pray the Lord my soul to take. I mean, when you're doing that with a six and seven year old, you know what I mean? It's no wonder it freaks them out. Like, it's like, you know. Did you, did you not, like myself, you know, you used to grow up here, you'd say to your mommy, good night, good night, mommy, good night, daddy, see you in the morning. And one of them would shout back, I have God spurs us. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that is such a Pentecostal thing, yeah. isn't it? Because anytime you ask somebody and they say, God spurs you know, us. Are we doing this next Wednesday? People say, yeah, God spares us. I'm like, do they know something that's going to happen before you, next Wednesday? Do they have the prophetic gift that, you know, that sort of... As a know, wee boy, you climb up yeah. the stairs shaking in your boots, thinking yeah. I, may not, I may not make it through the night. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I tell you what it does. It keeps you awake to reality. So, listen, we'll see you next week. God spares you. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the evidence as well, and I keep coming back to this because of the transformed life, and I think when you stand at a funeral service of somebody who was saved, and I remember, you know, we're on this platform as church is, is full, and you, you are leading, and you are sad because somebody has lost their life, the, and it may well be before their time, but not before God's time. And people worship and lift the, I mean, you know, I remember seeing a dear old saint, uh, you know, of this church, and, you know, when they passed, and they, we sung to him, then sings my soul, my saviour. I mean, I was in tears, not because the sadness of losing that person who you'd known, but, but actually just the, the, that, that it transformed, you know, just, a, and it wasn't emotion, it wasn't feeling, it was like, of all the suffering that they had had in their life, particularly towards the end of their life, they're now, you know, when you read the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, uh, you know, it talks about that there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more tears, no more, and we've got to believe that at the end, I mean, the Bible is a real book, it gives us a reality of life, of life and death and suffering and you know God picks characters who mess up and he picks because they're writing about life you know it wouldn't be no it wouldn't be relevant to us if we was all perfect people who never messed up who never sinned who never did all the stuff that they did they really did it and we read it and say hey I can relate to that but it talks about life and it talks about death and it talks about the hope that we have and that's why we have to read it as a whole we can't just pick a verse out and say we're well, just that verse we read it as a whole and when you get to the end of the book I love reading and you know but if you read the book like a bible like a novel and get to the end you read revelation 21 when you get home tonight a new heaven and a new earth and it says there will be no more of this that's the Christian hope, isn't it? And that's established by what Christ did, you know, as he was resurrected. As you said, the Trinity was involved. God the Father raised Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit. There's a Trinity in perfect uh, unison. There's another question that come through. I'll ask this. Uh, here we go. Next question. Here we go. Is it possible the Pharisees knew Jesus had to be crucified by Isaiah's prophecy? Did, did they know that it was going to happen? Did they know? Well, I mean, I'll let you answer that. Give me, give me the question Is, again. But did, 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 did they know uh, that, that, obviously, the Pharisees, were, they, they knew that Jesus had to be crucified. They read Isaiah 53. They knew the scriptures. 
uh, and so they knew that because Old Testament prophecy as well would have spoken about the resurrection of Jesus. So if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't believe that anyway, no. so probably... <laughs> I must confess, the reason why I said, could you read me that again? The first time you read it out, I thought, oh, you'll go ahead and answer that. I don't need to listen. <laughs> no, they didn't know because Paul said in 1 Corinthians, had the princes of this world known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They, they, they were blinded by their own unbelief. They were blinded by the evil one. There's this confusion in the powers of darkness when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ because, you know, Satan, as he worked through these men, and, and particularly through Judas in John chapter 13, the Bible says Satan entered into him. Um, there, there's this confusion. You know, Satan begins by trying to prevent Christ from going to the cross. You know, from his birth, we'll, we'll kill him in his infancy. It, it didn't work. And then we'll tempt him in the wilderness, and it, it didn't work either. And then we'll tempt him through Simon Peter. This will never happen to you. And Christ said, get you behind me, Satan. So it was almost as like, well, we'll try and stop him from getting to the cross. But when the evil one and the powers of darkness saw that there was no stopping him getting to the cross, it was then, let's get him to the cross then as quickly as possible. Let's get him on the tree. And all this madness then, all this chaos, all this angst, it, it engulfs the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas. And their panic to get Christ on the cross. That's why even as our pastor intimated this morning, they came to Pilate really early while it was still dark. And they wouldn't even come into Pilate's house. Pilate had to go out to meet them. And so laying in bed beside Claudia, his wife. Pilate, they want to see you. We'll bring them in. They won't come in. You'll have to go out. Are you getting up, love? Yes, if they go and see these blinking scribes and Pharisees. She fell back to sleep, had a dream, and then sent it to him later on. There's all this chaos. There's all this confusion that's around. So the short answer is no. They, when they read Isaiah 53, they, they looked at it, and they still do to this day, they look at Isaiah 53, and they believe it refers to the kingdom of Israel as a servant nation, not the servant king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the short answer is no. Had they known it, Paul said, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Yeah, I think the only thing I can allow, and I think the best description uh, that somebody has said of this is that God, this was God purposed this. God purposed what had to happen to Jesus. But he allowed it as well. So it, it had to happen. But there is a wonderful picture in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we must understand Jesus felt the pain and all of that as one fully human. When he says that phrase, not my will, but yours. And I think at that point, and, and this will freak some people out here because you use that word of, of, of choice, of, of free will, of almost Jesus had that at that point to simply say, I am doing this because this is God's will. You know, I am, he, you know the, the blood sweating is actually a sign of the severe anxiety that Jesus was under. In World War I, they discovered soldiers who were under severe anxiety, sweated blood, and they chased it back to the anxiety that Jesus was in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he, as he knew what awaited him and stuff. So this idea that this was some sort of robotic thing that just dumb, dumb, dumb all the way through. God purposed it and God allowed it. But you imagine as a father what he had to watch uh, for the sake of, of redeeming and rescuing us. It's like I said this morning at the cross, 
God needs to prove nothing else to no. us, does he? He needs to prove nothing else to us because of what Christ Jesus has done for you and for me. He said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yeah. In other words, if there's any other way of doing this, now would be a good time to introduce it. Gethsemane, as you know, it means the olive press. It's where they press the olives. And I've had the privilege of preaching in the Garden of Gethsemane on the foot of the Mount of Olives. And, and it's, they still would press olives. And so Christ was literally pressed because as he moved forward, he saw what it would be to become sin in the presence of uncreated holiness. And he was horrified at that. And as, as he backed away from that, behind him were all the prophecies of the Old Testament, all that the prophets had said about him. And so he was crushed. Is it any wonder he sweat great drops of blood? He's a wonderful savior. And, and just as we near finish, nine seconds, eight seconds. Uh, I don't know if pastor's going to extend it or not, but, but Paul said at the end of Acts chapter 17, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at. Now listen to this, folks, as we draw this to a close. God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained. And he has given assurance of that fact and that he has raised them from the dead. Do you see what Paul's saying there? Paul says, you can be assured that God will one day judge the world because he raised the judge from the dead. That's what he's saying. The resurrection matters over to you. you yeah, want. I think we're finished. Just a couple of minutes because we're, we're finished. And just think uh, that the reality of why the resurrection matters is that uh, it, it changes our lives tonight. We examine the evidence which we've done and that truth of the, the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes us. And you are presented with a choice tonight. It's as simple as that. It's you are presented with a choice. As Tim says, the evidence is laid out before us. We know this, that, that, that Christ lived as a man and he taught. We've done this through the Gospel of Matthew as we work our way through. But he died. And on Good Friday, we will come and remember the crucifixion of what he went through. But it won't end on Friday because we will gather next Sunday on Easter Sunday because he has risen from the dead. But as Tim says, there is another truth as well, that at some point he is coming back again. Now, in the middle of that process, we have to take the evidence that we're presented with tonight and say, do I believe this? Do I believe what God has done for me because he loves me by sending his son, Jesus Christ? And he says, you could walk out of this church tonight and say, you know what, that was a good service. There were lovely buns at the start, and I'll go back again, and tea was lovely and stuff. But I came to church tonight, and I heard the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, but he did it for you. He did it for each and every person that's gathered here. Regardless of the baggage and the stuff that we have brought in with us tonight, he did it for you. He says, you know, Paul goes through all of that at the end of that chapter in Corinthians and he says, hey, listen, Christ hasn't died. We've got no hope. Christ hasn't died. Then he says, our preaching is useless. Christ hasn't died. We're still in the sin. But he just simply says at the end, but he has. He has risen. He has risen. And that changes everything. That changes the whole picture, the whole circumstance, the whole situation, and ultimately our lives. It changes our lives. But we're presented with a choice now. And you see, God stands at the door and he knocks. He doesn't stand at the door and push his way into our lives because you hear something tonight. He says he stands at the door and he knocks. He says, I have done all of this to prove who I am 
to prove that I love you, what are you going to do with it? And I think that's really the choice that you're presented with tonight. Young, old, baggage, addictions, rubbish in your life, your marriage falling apart at the moment, you're about to lose your job, you're in debt, whatever. There is nothing, nothing that him dying on the cross and rising again cannot meet tonight. It's as simple as that. It's a foundation of what we believe and central to everything that we believe. And as we come and finish now, we're going to pray and the team are going to come and lead us in worship. And he says, and those of us who are there, we will, we will not just sort of, in a sense, well, that's a closing song. This will be a song that we sing, not just from our hearts, but from our minds as well, because we know it to be true. It's truth. What Christ has done for each and every one of us is truth. Our choice now, do we accept it? Let, let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you tonight. We hope in our words, Lord, that we have presented the evidence of why the resurrection matters, that the meaning of it spiritually, but also the truth of it historically. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross for our sins, was buried, but then he rose again. And it's central, the foundation. It's the, it's the, it's the building blocks that everything else is built on. And we thank you for that tonight. And Father, as we come tonight, we do indeed pray for any in here presented with the choice tonight, presented with you knocking on the, the door of their hearts, Father, to say, look what I have done for you. Look what I have done for you with my son Jesus to prove that I love you, to prove that you can be forgiven of all your sin. What a powerful message tonight, Father. And we thank you that in this, in, in this year, in this time, in this church, that your gospel still works. It still changes people's lives. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We are just a first.